0: O still, small voice of calm, speak to us that we may hear a word of grace and show forth your light and love in all the world. Amen. So my family and I... uh, Still getting used to winter in Georgia. <laughs> Not a lot of snow in San Diego. So it's something of a novelty this past Wednesday morning for a couple of my kids to join the neighborhood in sledding down the street adjacent to our house that had frozen over. As the kids zigzag down the middle of the road, a couple of our neighbors were trying to assure me that snow like this never really happens in Atlanta, It was as surreal as it was wonderful. Of course, my kids think this is the best climate imaginable. Snow enough to close school for a couple of days during the school week, and then warm and sunny enough on the weekend to play soccer outside. (laughs) It's not a bad deal. It's tempting to ask, with the weather being as it has, what sort of time are we living in? Have the weather events of the past year and more simply been the pattern of climate cycles or do the hurricanes, extreme cold freezes and searing heat waves point to what scientists have heralded as the advent of the Anthropocene, the segment of geological time when humankind is able to impact the environment around it on a planetary scale? I wonder if you read, as I did this week, about Cape Town in South Africa, there's actually sent out a save-the-date card you don't want to receive, the date in April of this year when the city predicts it will run out of water, unprecedented for an industrialized city. What sort of time are we living in? Of course, these are matters for science. Yet the question of time poses us theological challenges too. One of the great barriers for a preacher to overcome is the fact that concerns that are theological in nature are set way too far in the distance for most people to really take them seriously. While theology is a conversation about what German theologian Paul Tillich called ultimate concerns, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And so on. These concerns are so ultimate that other concerns easily outpace them in the race to get our attention. We don't tend to dwell too much on the meaning of life when the bosses place a new deadline in our laps. And many are just too busy chasing down the kids or racking up the air miles or dealing with the laundry and the dishes and the day-in, day-out stuff of life to do little more than get through it only to get up the next day and do it all over again. To ask ourselves what sort of time we are living in seems to be a philosopher's luxury. Yet it turns out that our sense of time is actually fundamental to our passage through it. For instance, who would have thought that how we talk about time can actually influence how we fare over time? In his new book, When, Daniel Pink describes an economist's research which examines the relationship between well-being and weak versus strong future-oriented languages. People who speak weak future languages, such as Mandarin or Finnish, languages that don't distinguish grammatically between the present and the future, end up being 30% 30% more likely to save for retirement. Accounting for other factors, such people also exercise more regularly, and when they reach their later years, they are healthier and wealthier than those whose native language makes a strong det- distinction between the present and the future. Apparently, one of the problems that strong future language speakers, like English speakers, face is that many people end up seeing their future self as a different person to their current version. So when they talk about their future self, they're conditioned to think of that person as somebody else. Now, for those of you in the life insurance or pension sales business, you might be interested to know that studies have found that even showing people aged advanced pictures of their faces can boost their willingness to save. Likewise, for someone like me, working in what might be called a different sort of life insurance business, (laughs) we might ask, what might boost people's willingness to ponder their ultimate concerns? It's a question that takes us right to the heart of the action of the gospel story we heard this morning that sees four presumably seasoned fishermen decide that the needs of the present had all of a sudden been outweighed by the immediacy of what stood before them. As fishermen, their daily life required them to be careful about the decisions they made. We know both from the gospel stories and its current behavior that the Sea of Galilee, where Simon, Andrew, James, and John fished, was subject to sudden and violent storms. A successful fisherman would have needed to be a good reader of the times at a very detailed level, right to the hour or even the minute. We might also assume that given the widespread nature of poverty in colonized Judea, maintaining a healthy-sized catch was paramount. Thus, these fishermen would have needed to become adept at discerning the right time to set out and perhaps even more, the right time to come back from a fishing expedition. In other words, the last thing that we would think of these men of being is impulsive. Yet when we meet them, they are either dutifully helping their father mend the nets in the boat or they're cleaning them, casting them in and out of the sea, yet all four of them, almost as soon as they see Jesus, leave those nets, their livelihoods, even their families, and follow him. Why? The answer for me lies in the fact that for these four men, the question of what sort of time they were living in had rushed right to the front of their awareness, an instance of what readers of the Bible call a little epiphany. The season of the church year we're currently in is called the season after The epiphany, the place in time when the mystery of the incarnation, the taking of human form by God and Jesus is revealed to the magi, the wise men who come to see the infant in the manger. It has our gospel readings through this season, wish to show us there is not one epiphany, one demonstration or manifestation of God breaking into human history, but many Jesus' baptism, his healing miracles and power over demonic spirits, his transfiguration on the mountain with Elijah and Moses, and his calling of his disciples, each of them epiphanies in their own right, moments in time when something of the eternal touched the earthly. I wonder if you have had such an experience yourself a moment when you have found yourself in a thin space where the distance between heaven and earth has thinned and you are somehow present to something more. It is what last week's wonderful preacher, Natasha Reed Rice, reminded us felt like to Dr. King as having gone to the mountaintop. For the great Anglican preacher and forerunner of the Methodist tradition, John Wesley, it was the experience of feeling strangely warmed. For that heavy weight of the intellectual advancement of the early church, St. Augustine of Hippo, it was the deep sense that in his heart, which had been so restless, he had finally found his rest in God. And for mere everyday folk like you and I, it could be the peace of God that catches your heart. As you watch the sun set over the Appalachians or the presence you feel in the utter stillness of the early morning lake waters of North Georgia. Or the love that you know from friends who are with you all the way to the very end. We may know God's epiphany in the last goodbye kiss in the hospital room And we may know it as we cradle new life as it emerges into the world in all of its miraculous beauty. And it is my strong conviction that these fishermen of Galilee, hands callous and feet sore, saw in Jesus as he stood before them in plain sight, a holiness that you and I can only hope to glimpse the glory of. My sense is that Jesus didn't even need to say the time is fulfilled for every common bush and every bone and sinew of their bodies knew it and all they could do was follow. Mark Twain once said that the two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. (laughs) The beauty of this life is that as distracted as we are, as strenuous as the demands can be that are placed upon our time, as much as we can be pulled anywhere but into an awareness of the gift of grace, those days when we find out why we are here, just keep on coming. Your life is a three score and ten long season of epiphanies, openings of the eternal for you to find the one who has set out to find you first. What better time is there than now? He stands at the lakeshore calling your name.